0: Well, let's open up our Bibles or just turn in your bulletin. We're looking at 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Let me begin by asking, what is it that you tend to boast in? Could it be your pedigree, your family name, or your prestigious university degree. Could, it, could your boast be in your long-developed industry expertise that earns you a really nice salary, or your good looks, like me, or your sense of humor? Maybe you boast in your wealth. Perhaps you boast in, in your beautiful Instagram-worthy family. Or perhaps in something so simple is a tireless work ethic today paul shows us that all our boastings all of our boasting is really listen a hindrance to god unleashing power in our lives paul shows us that true power from god is only made perfect In our weaknesses. Ouch. We all want to be powerful, but maybe not if it means we must first become weak. (laughs) So what will you do? How will you respond? Let's see. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness or conceited, Um, of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being conceited three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me but he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, uh, it's true, um, the kingdom you call us into in so many ways is upside down from what we see in the world, and yet the world is so alluring to us. Help us by your spirit to remind us, to teach us, to show us your way. Help us to know that from your hand come things like command- calamities and weaknesses and thorns in the flesh. But you do this for our good, that we may be, de- be people who depend on our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that I would decrease and Jesus would increase in this very room and in these very words, we pray. Amen. Well, I should have known that this sermon was going to be a hard one to prepare. Pretty much every week in which I prepare a sermon, God wants to take the sermon text and work it in me first. And so two weeks out, like before I even... Prep for last week's sermon, I just took a look at this passage, and and I remember thinking, wow, what an amazing passage to preach upon. I mean, the passage almost preaches itself. When I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, it doesn't get any more tweet-worthy than that, right? And so I should have known better. I should have known that God would make this one of the harder sermons to prepare So even though as I was going through my normal sermon prep routine, which I've done for over a dozen years now, I find myself despairing, thinking, why is this so hard? Why isn't this, why is this taking so long? What is it that I'm really supposed to say? And what I came to realize is that the Lord wanted me to live out this sermon before I preached it. (laughs) But first let me say, I'm not so sure I've lived it out all that well. But somehow I've got to preach it. He wanted me to be weak and stripped of my boastings. He wanted me to pray and then pray and then pray some more. And he wanted me to listen to these words of Paul that Jesus, um, that Jesus spoke to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. it's a lesson we all have to learn as we follow jesus the way up is the way down though the way of glory is found in the mundane and the way of powers through weakness part of god's humbling me humbling of me is for me to recognize the things that i tend to boast in you know pastors tend to boast in the weirdest things nickels and noses and Um, our success can be wrapped up with things like, well, how full was the parking lot, you know? And how many people said, that was a good sermon, Mark, on the way out? Feel free to say that if you want. (laughs) (laughs) But as Ray Ortland Jr. puts it, he says, success in Christianity is not success. Listen, success in Christianity is dependence on Christ. And so this isn't just a lesson for me. This is a lesson for us all. Only in dependence on Christ in his resur- is his resurrection power made perfect in our lives. Only when we are weak in him can we be strong in him. So today let's look at this. this how Christ's resurrected power is made perfect in our weakness. We're going to do that as we look at two points. The first point is this. Listen, my friends. Our greatest spiritual growth comes through life's hardest experiences. Paul shows us this in two amazing stories in this short passage. One is what? A guided tour of heaven. And the other is a story of a debilitating thorn in the flesh. Now let me ask you, which of the two do you think helped Paul the most? The answer lies in what Paul boasts about. First, the story of Paul's tour of heaven. Now, why does he tell this story anyway? He would have preferred never to even have mentioned that time 14 years ago when God brought him up into heaven. So why tell it now? Well, the context is that after Paul went to Corinth and planted this church, he spent two full years there. And after he left, some false teachers had come in and they, they started turning the people away from the gospel and away from Paul. And so... In fact, in the verse right after our passage, in, in verse 11, Paul calls these teachers, calls them super apostles. Not that they were super, or not that they were apostles, but that is how they were viewed in the eyes of the church members in Corinth. They were superstars. They were flashy and eloquent speakers. They dressed well. Their speech was lawfully and titillating and persuasive. Evidently, these super apostles were all about the the mystical experiences that they had in their own private devotions. They boasted of their private visions and their revelations. Uh, I had a vision from the Lord last night, they would say, and all the members in Corinth would come and say, Ooh, ah, that's amazing. And the more they ooh and ah at the super apostles, the less they esteemed the real apostle, Paul. That's the context in which Paul tells these two stories. And so in chapter, one verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. Paul would prefer not to have to boast of his vision. He would, he would, he would likely would have just gone to the grave if he could, without ever telling the story to anybody. It was between him and his Lord. But it's as if he's saying, okay, You guys are all about private visions and revelations. Well, check this one out. See if your super apostles can even come close to topping this one. Verse 2, he says, I know a man in Christ 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. So who is this man? It's Paul. And how do we know? Well, he's humble. He doesn't want to boast in himself. But twice the, the apostle refers to himself in the third person. But it's Paul. How do we know? Because in verse 7, he switches to the first person. He begins to speak about his weaknesses. And he identifies himself as the, one re, the recipient of, of this revelation, as well as the thorn that came with it. Paul says 14 years earlier, he's caught up into the third heaven. So, okay, first heaven, that's where the birds and bugs fly around. Second heaven, that's where the moon and the stars are. And the third heaven is where it's God's abode. It's heaven itself, paradise, he says. Paul says he doesn't know if he was literally raptured up into heaven in his body or out of his body. He doesn't know, but God knows. Why? Because it was God who brought him up there into heaven. In verse 4, we read that God told him things that cannot be told. Why can't they be told? Is it because it's some unknown angelic language? Are the words unintelligible? No, Paul couldn't repeat the words because God said, this is between you and me. Don't repeat the words. These private experiences and words were meant for Paul and Paul alone. And even now, Paul won't say what he heard, right? Though he could have. I'm sure he remembered quite clearly the experience and what God said to him. But he won't say a thing, which is totally opposite of these boastful men that had been infiltrating the church and leading them astray. The first words out of their mouth would have been, guess what, church? I had this amazing vision last night. And here's what God told me. And then they would go on waxing and waning and causing the, the Corinthians to idolize them all the more verse 6, Paul says that he refrains from revealing his private revelations and visions. Why? Verse 6, so that, listen, no one may think more of me. I don't know about you, my tendency is I want people to think more of me. Look how good he is. Well boy, did you see him serving or whatever? I want people to boast in me. And Paul's like, no way. Because if 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 my ministry is all about me being elevated, then what happens? Jesus gets diminished. And so Paul is saying, I don't want anybody to, I'm not going to elevate any of my personal private times with the Lord. I want people to see Christ in me as I do what? As I speak. From scripture, and as I live out this Christian life in humility before them. Paul sought not to elevate himself in their eyes, he lived to elevate Christ. In doing so, Paul is laying down the foundation for the church. He wants to ensure that authority in the church would not be based on personal, private, ecstatic experiences, but in the visible actions and words of its leaders. Why is this? We see a lot of examples of this. Two weeks ago, we lost another celebrity pastor, Joshua Harris. He wrote a book in the late late nineties, titled "I Kiss Dating Goodbye," and he became he ended up marrying this pretty Christian woman and became a big celebrity pastor at a really big church. He wrote another book, and well, two weeks ago, he announced on Instagram uh, that he was not only kissing his wife goodbye for good. But he also kissed Christianity goodbye. The, the day the news broke, I was, you know, reading a bunch of comments on somebody's posts, and here's one of them that stuck out. This one guy put it wisely. He said, That's why it's important that all your heroes are dead. You know, Paul's words, they caution us this morning. We we can get sucked up. And sucked in by some Christian leaders who are who talk a big talk. They're boasters. It's all about some big word they heard from the Lord the night before. Some way they just make themselves out to be the spiritual ones that you could never be, which is false. They'll always be talking about their special revelations, their ministry, their successes. Often they don't even have churches, right? They just got a blog post or something, right? They're not actually living amongst God's people and suffering with them. But sometimes their boasting isn't so obvious. Some ministry leaders don't so much outwardly boast. You know, we leaders, we can do a good job of, like, feigning humility, right? (laughs) Sometimes boasting isn't so obvious, some ministry leaders don't so much as outwardly boast, but at the end of their message or their blog or their sermon, you're, you're left idolizing them as some sort of super spiritual Christian that you wish you could be like. Now, it is good that you should res- respect your pastor and in my case, offer a lot of grace but do not elevate your pastor. You will only be let down. Paul says, don't be fooled by the boasting. Instead, look at the life they live, their words, their deeds. Are they humble? Do they, like Christ, turn the other cheek? Are they instigators or peacemakers? Do they faithfully handle scriptures? So listen, so that at the end of the sermon, the hero is Jesus Do they continually remind you of your constant need of Christ as well as their constant need of Christ? Do they minister out of weakness? That's the first story. The second story is the story of what Paul calls a thorn given me in the flesh. Now, There's been a lot of speculation about what the thorn is. I'm not going to go into all that. Some have suggested, though, that it was probably, maybe there was those antagonists in the church. They're like a thorn. The problem with that view, though, is that Paul was given the thorn 14 years earlier, which was prior to the arrival of the super apostles. So most likely, Paul's thorn in the flesh was some sort of physical illness or ailment that came right after this vision that he had in heaven. It's possible in light of some of his letters, especially Galatians, that, um, that it was some sort of eye ailment that, that hindered his eyesight, perhaps even gave him um, you know, a, a physical presence that, that was unsightly, like people didn't want to look at him. Whatever the thorn was, the better question is what? Why is it given to Paul? The answer is in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the thorn was giving me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He like bookends it, right? In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I got this thing to keep me from becoming conceited. So that's the answer, to keep him from becoming conceited. And think about it, to travel into heaven itself to see the saints who have died that are in God's glorious presence, to, to see the angels and the worship and the glory to, and to talk with God himself? Come on now, would that not go to your head? <laughs> would you not land back on earth and walk around with your chest all out? Would you not swiftly call the church together and spill the beans? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you, but I'd be printing new business cards. I'd be lining up a book deal with movie rights and a speaking tour. But Paul didn't tell a soul for 14 years and likely never would have except for the problem in Corinth. Why did he keep his mouth shut all those years? a thorn that humbled him. a thorn that God gave him to keep him weak and utterly dependent upon Christ. Paul says in verse 7 that it was given to harass me. The, The Greek word translated harass means to beat or to strike with a fist. Likely the physical ailment hurt physically. It prevented Paul from living freely, made life difficult perhaps even unbearable at times. Some of you know what that's like, right? It certainly was likely a source of ridicule. Those super apostles, they must have mocked Paul and derided him for this very thorn. Whatever the thorn was, we must note that while the, while the thorn was what? Satan's work, it was God who allowed it. And this is where this really begins to hit home. Listen, Just as God was the one who was responsible for the ecstasy, Paul's rapture into the third heaven, so too God was also responsible for the agony of Paul's thorn. This thorn was a necessary gift. The word give is there. It's a gift, didomai in the Greek, gift from God so that Paul would not become conceited. And so here's a tough question for you to consider. Do you have room in your theology for God to purposefully allow thorns into your life to beat and harass you? Do you have room for the possibility that your greatest spiritual growth will come through life's hardest challenge? These challenges, these thorns, they're not accidents. They're God's will for your life. Check this out. Paul didn't tell the Corinthians of his glorious vision when he was with them. He had had the vision before he went to Corinth. He didn't say a word to them the whole two years he's there. But he, what? Gladly let them see his weakness. And no doubt those super apostles mocked Paul in Corinth. What kind of apostle is Paul? Paul, he's no man of God. He's had this ailment for five years now. Looks like God doesn't even answer his prayers. Good riddance. But understand this. The very thing that his opponents in Corinth would have used to prove that God was not with Paul was actually what? Proof of God's power and presence in Paul's ministry. Paul wants the Corinthians To hear him say, the very thing that you look down upon, my weakness in your midst, guess what? That was God's gift to me and his gift to you. It's not evidence of God's abandonment, but a stamp of God's approval. Paul is able to boast in his weaknesses. Can you boast in them? But also, Paul is refreshingly honest about his thorn, right? What was Paul's first response to his thorn? And What do you and I do when pain or hardship or trials come into our lives? We rightly pray that God would take it away. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul is no masochist. He's not like, out there looking for harm to come his way. And neither should we. A while back, a young veteran um, from a couple tours in Iraq started coming to our church, and he was an infantry soldier, and and I get he, he just kicked a few too many doors down in Ramadi, and um, but we hung out quite a bit. He's since he since moved on elsewhere, but uh, we would go, we would go out to lunch and we would talk, and he thought he was a Christian. But over time, I realized he really didn't understand salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He always kept looking for one more thing to do in order to earn God's love. One day at lunch, he said to me, Mark, are you familiar with how some of the members of Opus Dei wear cilises? And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm familiar with that. I, I've heard of that. For those of you who don't know what a Silice is, it's a... It's a, it's a a wrap with spikes on it that you wrap around your thigh, underneath your clothing, uh, in order to inflict constant pain. <laughs> it's a literal thorn in the flesh. Yes, I'm familiar. Why do you ask? Well, I'm thinking about getting one. <laughs> How would you answer him? I think Paul would say, don't go out looking for thorns in the flesh. If God thinks you need one, he will deliver you a thorn in his timing. I don't know if he ever got one. Paul prays three times for its removal. Three times probably symbolizes a really long period of time where Paul prayed and he prayed and he prayed. The remarkable thing for us us to chew on this morning isn't that Paul prayed for relief, but that Christ said what? No. No. You're going to have this for the rest of your life. Do you think Christ said no because he wasn't familiar with what Paul was enduring? A no from heaven? Of course not remember jesus on that night in the garden of gethsemane called his disciples to pray he's going to be betrayed um in in a few hours and he's praying he's praying three times he prayed to his father in heaven if you could just take this cup away if you could just take this cross away if there's some other way than me dying on a cross for the sins of this world could you just do that three times he said pray but but not my will but your will be done And in the end of his prayers, what was God's answer to his very own divine son? No. You know, so many Christians today have been told that God wants to take away all your hurts and pains. Just pray to him. And if you have enough faith, it'll be gone. And if it doesn't go away, well, I guess you just don't have enough faith. Because really, God wants all of his people to be well and prosperous. That's a message that is ever-present in Christianity, especially in America. Don't get me wrong. One day, in the age to come, God will make us all well and whole. But in this age, there's no guarantee. And so, my friends, does does your theology of prayer have room for God saying, No, I've given you that unbelieving spouse is a thorn, and I will not take it away. Does your theology of prayer have room for God saying, no, I've given you that that, that diagnosis as a thorn, and I'm not going to take it away. Or no, I've given you your singleness as a thorn, or I've given you your barren womb as a thorn, or I've given you a wayward child as a thorn. Does your theology of prayer have room for such things? Or, Or is your God just a God who would never do that If your practice of Christianity does not allow for God to say no to what you think are things he has to say yes to, then you lack biblical understanding, and your view of God is small and self-serving. But more than that, I hope you understand, you will lack spiritual vitality. And your life will be characterized with your ever-present lament, woe is me. Instead of worthy is the Lord in whom I find strength. So my friends, let us not. I, I do not want us to discount our mountaintop, ex, mountaintop experiences. I've had them. My guess is you have. A week-long retreat somewhere where you enjoyed Christ's presence in a real and true and powerful way. But once in a lifetime experiences like Paul's are Wonderful. But our most powerful spiritual breakthroughs come through, through hardship and then learning to live with it in God's grace. Which brings us to our second of two points and it'll go much faster than the first. I'm hungry too. Our second point is this. Our weakness becomes a platform for resurrection power. Paul began his letter by relaying to the Corinthians the truth that God gives resurrection power to his people. If you understand this book in the Bible, you would would come to realize that this entire book of 2 Corinthians is all about power and weakness. The very beginning in chapter 1, here's what Paul says. Listen. Uh, Chapter 1, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we've experienced in Asia. Listen, for we were utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's how he begins this letter. And then in chapter 2, Paul explains that there's this byproduct that we experience when we live in this weakness where he says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Power and weakness. Paul's weakness became like this fan, electric fan, that that blew the aroma of Christ and the scent of his saving power wherever he went. The most eloquent statement of power and weakness is in chapter 4. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Fragile, fragile our lives, our bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Listen, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Power and weakness, it runs through this entire letter, and it reaches its most powerful expression in our verse. Verse 9 is the summary of the the entire letter. But he said to me, that's Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, it's not like the world's power, my power is made perfect in weakness. The commentator Ken Hughes, who I'm indebted to here in this section, writes, He writes, the massed force of Paul's repeated eloquent statements of power in weakness is meant to capture our souls and make it the motif for our lives. My friends, what we need most is to see that power in weakness is shorthand for the cross. God's plan of redemption in his plan, there had to be weakness, crucifixion, before there was power, resurrection. And in this power and weakness connection, this is what Paul reflected on when he, contemplating, he contemplated Christ's prayer three times. When Jesus was weak and powerless at Gethsemane, before his death on the cross. But after his death on the cross, it was followed by the power of resurrection. Paul came to understand and he came to embrace the fact that that his thorn in the flesh was essential for his ongoing weakness and essential for him to experience Christ's ongoing power. And with this, we come to see Paul's greatest boast. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul's reluctance to boast has now evaporated, right? Because he boasts now, not in himself, but in Christ. He joyfully boasts of his weakness, his thorn, as well as his beatings and hardships and sleepless nights and hunger and thirst. Why? It's because of the power and weakness principle. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is beautiful, my friends. I hope we don't miss it. This, rest upon me, this is like tabernacle language, like like when God came and pitched his tent in the wilderness of Sinai. It's also the language when Jesus is spoken of as the word who became flesh and tabernacled, literally pitched his tent among us. And here in in verse 9, Paul employs this awesome image. He does so to teach us that this all-surpassing power of Christ comes when he pitches his tent with his people in their weaknesses. My friends, life is not as it appears to be. We're led by today's culture to imagine that God pitches his tent where? With the especially famous and powerful, even in the church, those who can speak of ecstasies and miraculous power, and who command large crowds as they jet from city to city, enjoying the spotlight on the center stage. But it's not so. Christ pitches his tent where? With the weak, with the unknown, with the suffering shut-in, with the anonymous pastor in a tiny church, with the overlooked missionary. He pitches his tent with the godly, quiet servants like you and me who serve in our home or in the marketplace. This brings us to Paul's disposition. It's the disposition that we need to have. How is it that Paul then approached his life in ministry? It's the very last verse. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content... You know, the actual word there in the Greek is really like, I'm happy. I'm pleased. When God spoke over Jesus at his baptism, he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It's the same Greek word. Paul says, I'm, I'm pleased with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Ken Hughes goes on saying, there is no value in the endurance of hardship and indignities in themselves, right? In other words, there's no virtue in suffering for suffering's sake. Everything turns here on the phrase, for the sake of Christ. Only a fanatic would find themselves content, happy, and self-inflicted sufferings and miseries. But a Christian will find a special contentment, will we not, in, in the suffering that he or she has endured for the sake of Christ. This is because the believer has come to understand, like Paul, and has taken to heart the, the paradox of power. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The spiritual math is never my weakness plus his strength equals my power. No, rather is my weakness plus his strength equals his power in me for his sake. All right, this morning we've seen two points. Our greatest spiritual growth comes through life's hardest experiences. I'm sure some of you, perhaps looking through some of you older ones here, you have got a lot of experiences. You're like, yeah, that's true. Some of you younger people, you just need to know that. You know, you're, you're in school or you're going off to college or whatever. You need to know that, that, that weakness is, is something that God uses so you can depend more on Christ. The world we live in will say, no, hide your weaknesses. Don't let anybody see them run from them by the power that you have you can just do this on your own that's not the message of truth the the second thing we see is that our weakness becomes a platform for resurrection power most Christians don't know of Henrietta Mears she passed away in 1963 in Bel Air, California but she was used so mightily to strengthen the church through her discipling and through her writing. But like Paul, she was given a thorn in the flesh. She s- suffered from childhood with extreme myopia and also a general eye weakness and irritation. And she, like Paul, cried out for relief, but for no avail. In her maturity, Ms. Mears often remarked, she'd say, I believe my greatest spiritual asset throughout my entire life was my failing eyesight for it kept me absolutely dependent upon God. Henrietta Mears went on still plagued with her increasing disabilities to set the standard for Sunday schools in America. She wrote the million plus bestseller, What the Bible is All About. She influenced Billy Graham (laughs) And Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, she had strong influences upon Richard Halverson, who was the chaplain of the United States Senate, just to name a few. The paradox of power. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God doesn't need our perceived strengths if that's what we depend on. He wants our weaknesses, our sufferings, our insults, our inadequacies, our disabilities, our failures, our, ca- our calamities, our fears. Even more, he wants us to boast in these weaknesses so that Christ's power will come to us as he pitches his tent with us and in us. Christ in us, the the. The hope of glory, the power of resurrection—that is the reward for those who serve Him in their weakness. So maybe we not boast in ourselves; let us boast in our weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon us. Let us continually hear the sweet words from our Lord: "My grace is sufficient for you; for my power." is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you um, that you not only lived out this paradox of weakness being triumphant in power and glory, but you also make it available to us as you come and tabernacle with us. You, 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 your grace um, is over us. We thank you for that power in grace. Help us to, um, help us to see the areas in which we boast that, are, that aren't pleasing to you as we come to this table. May we rebuke ourselves of such foolishness May we boast only in Christ, we pray. Amen.